Kyle Zook will be bringing her message. A second ago, I, I turned back and I looked and I didn't see Kyle there. And, you know, the little panic overcame me. I was like, if Kyle's not here, I'm going to be preaching. <laughs> so just, my brain started thinking, what am I going to preach on? And then I turned and looked and Kyle was there and I was more than delighted to see him. <laughs> let, let me pray for, pray for him. Father, thank you for... Thank you for Kyle and his willingness to bring your word. I just thank you for his friendship. And I just pray that you use him today to reach our hearts with your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. As always, I hope that everyone's been doing well since we were last together. That you've enjoyed your week. Been able to enjoy the rain. And, uh, you know as well, happy Father's Day. I hope that... You get to spend time with your father in one way or another. If he's already gone to be with the Lord, I pray that you you have fond memories to reflect back on. And if you are a father and your children are here, I hope that you get to spend time with them, either through a phone call, a Zoom call, or in person. And you know, I I think maybe we should take today as well to take the opportunity to pray for each other as fathers, not just as brothers in Christ, but specifically for each other and all the adventures of fatherhood, right? That we have love and patience and kindness because you never know what you're going to run into with your children. You know, (laughs) there's a time where the toilet won't flush and you call a plumber and he puts the camera down there and all of a sudden on the screen pops up this bright orange matchbox car and no one has any clue how it got there, right? (laughs) Or, Or you go outside and the kids drew a picture on the side of your car so that you would think of them at work with their fingers in the dust and you go out there a few days later and they drew you another one, but this time with a rock. And no one knows who wrote that one either, right? So rather you're, there's patience or you're trying to solve the mysteries of life, I hope we lift each other up. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. We're going to continue to go through the Gospel of John together. John chapter 1. And it's kind of a review, you know. Remember that John starts out the Gospel by kind of building some ideas or giving us some examples of the character of Christ as a foundation that we can build on as we continue to go through the gospel. Remember, we talked about in the beginning was the word and how that word meant logos and how that's kind of a a divine rationality, a divine logic, a creating force. And that in the beginning means that Christ is eternal. Therefore, Christ was at creation. The Trinity was present at creation. And we talked about the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among his people and that Christ is the light and he is the life of light and that the darkness cannot overcome it. And we talked about John the Baptist a little bit. Remember, we said that he is the one who Isaiah prophesied about who would come to make straight the way of the Lord and how in every single aspect of life, John the Baptist was preceding Christ, whether it was in the angel visiting their fathers or in conception and the ministry beginning and being captured and in death and always John the Baptist was making straight the way of the Lord. And we also talked about the special moment where John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was pregnant with him and a pregnant Mary walks into the room and the baby, John the Baptist, leaped with joy because he knew that it was the Savior. But as we pick up here, we'll be in verse 23, John chapter 1, 23, and we're going to read verses 23 through 51, and we're going to pick up with John the Baptist kind of explaining to people who he is. John chapter 1, verse 23, he said, 
I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one who you do not know. He who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, upon him this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated Peter. The next day he proposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph, Nathanael, said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, as we read through there, there's obviously a lot in that. And we're not going to examine it all today. But as we continue to move forward, I want us to read everything together because at the end of this, I want us as a congregation to have read the entire Gospel of John together, even the elements that we don't initially address. And as we continue going forward, there are things in the beginning that we are not addressing right now that we will come back to to examine the foundation that John was giving us. But the portion of Scripture that we're going to focus on today begins in verse 29 moving forward. Behold the Lamb of God. 
What I want us to look at is all the events that happened after Jesus Christ is declared and the life of these men and what we know will happen as it continues to go forward. Now, first off, in verse 29, when John the Baptist declares, behold, the Lamb of God, we have to remember that there are reasons why he's doing this. One, in the law, in Exodus 12, each house was to sacrifice a lamb on Passover. And we remember also that when the children of Israel were in Egypt, the lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put over the manifold of the door and the angel of death passed by. Just as we who are saved in the blood of Christ are not condemned as well. And we also know that it's prophetic as well, because in Isaiah 53, the Messiah is described as the lamb who has led the slaughter. And so in all these ways, through the law, through history and prophetically, these are the reasons why John is calling him the Lamb of God. But there's more than that going on as well. When you read the 13th century <clears throat> theologian John Wycliffe, and he's talking about this, this story here of John the Baptist declaring Christ, he goes through three verses and he states that what is happening here is John the Baptist is giving three testimonies to the person of Christ. In verse 29, he is called the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God's mission was one of redemption. It was one of sacrifice. It was one who would take the sinner's place. In verse 33, when he is referred to as the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, this is the one who would found the church. And in verse 34, when John calls him the Son of God, he is the one who would be found worthy of adoration and obedience for the church moving forward. He was the Messiah. Now, starting at behold, the Lamb of God and moving forward, you know, after John declares him, well, what happens next? Well, you see the disciples of John looking at Christ from a distance. And after John declares who he is, behold, the Lamb of God, Andrew and this other disciple get up and they go and they seek him and then they meet him. And then Andrew goes and tells Peter about him or tells Simon. And then Simon comes and Simon meets him. And it is then when Christ gives Simon the name of Peter. Now, we see multiple ways as we're going through this that these men came to meet Jesus Christ, don't we? We see the disciples from a distance hearing him declared and seeking after him. And then after they meet him, Andrew goes and finds Simon, as we said. And then we see Philip being personally called directly by Jesus Christ. And then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. So the one who is directly called goes and finds the one who answers with sarcasm. And the one who dealt harshly meets Christ and is one of the first ones to declare him by title, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. Now, no matter how it is that these men came to Christ or how they heard about him, the gospel does not continue on by telling us about their lives until it explicitly tells us that they met Jesus. They met Jesus and then they moved forward with their life. And oftentimes, you know, we think we look at people and we've said this before, how we think that there's there's no need 
to tell the person about Christ, right? Like they're a lost cause. They'll never change. There's no way that this person would ever consider this. It's almost, it's almost kind of dangerous because we think that we can look at the person and we can tell that the Holy Spirit is not powerful enough to move in their life because they're a lost cause. Almost as if we're limiting the Holy Spirit's and what it can do in a person's life because we see them as not being worthy to even tell them about Christ. But look at everything that transpired after these men had heard. We look at Peter and the relationship that he had, and we see all the miracles and all the travels that they had with Christ. And in this initial point, when they're first coming to meet Christ, they had no idea what the future was going to hold for them. And, you know, as we kind of begin examining this story and we look at it initially, I think you've got to kind of stop and ask yourself, did they truly understand what they were claiming in this moment did they truly understand what they were claiming you see we understand everything because we have the unique ability and perspective because of the time period we live in to look backwards and know the whole story so we see how it pieces itself together you know and and this makes me think of a quote by one of my my favorite uh, theologians and philosophers named soren kierkegaard he states that life must be lived forward but can be only stood by looking backwards. Life must be lived forward, but can only be understood by looking backwards. And so, yes, we can understand looking backwards, but think about them being in the moment, living forward, not knowing what was next. The Jews had a very different expectation of who the Messiah was and who he would be. They were expecting a deliverer, one who would save them from the Romans, one who would almost help them conquer them and put them in control. They weren't expecting a meek servant. They weren't expecting the lamb spoken about in Isaiah 53. And in fact, we know that they didn't fully quite comprehend, right? Because, you know, as you go forward and you continue to read, you see James and John asking if they can be seated at the right and left hand of his throne. And then also in verses 31 and 33, you see John the Baptist, even though he is Christ's cousin, telling them that I did not recognize him. I did not recognize him. But then in 33, he goes on to explain that he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, stating that even though he did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, he knew to declare him because God had given him a sign to watch for. And he had seen that at the baptism of Christ. But as we said, they had no idea of what the future is hold. Andrew had no idea when he told Peter about the Messiah, the relationship that would develop and everything that would come out of that. Peter's zeal and his love for Christ and how he would stand in the garden with a sword and defend him, knowing that he could have been attacked and the miracles that would have happened involving Peter walking across the water and Peter's love for Christ after the after the resurrection, Christ is on a beach and Peter dives out of a boat and swims ashore and runs onto the bank to meet Christ before the others can even dock the boat. You know, Peter's overboard. Andrew had no idea that that is the type of relationship that Peter would have with Christ by simply introducing him to him. And as we said, life is life is lived forward, but it's understood looking backwards. And we see in this moment John declaring him. And Peter seeking after him. Now, from our perspective, we know that eventually John the Baptist will be in prison and he will send his disciples to Christ to ask him, are you the one that we've been waiting for? 
And we know also that in the future, from this point, Peter will deny Christ three times. But in this moment, none of those things exist. John is not in prison, and Peter has not denied him yet. John is simply declaring Jesus the Messiah as he was told to do, and Peter is meeting him for the first time. And there is a beauty in this because they are simply satisfied with declaring Christ and meeting him. There is no worry about the trials and tribulations that will be ahead or everything that they're going to be going through. They're simply in the moment, standing before Christ and enjoying his presence and gaining an understanding of who he is. And we may sit, we may ask ourselves, how was it that they continued to move forward when they did not completely understand the kingdom of God and, and Christ and how he would be working his ministry on earth? Well, there's two facets to that. One is they were with Christ. They were in his presence. They were communing with him. They were being taught with him. They were not leaving his side. They were helping him in his ministry daily. They were in the presence of Christ. And the second aspect is the faith they had. Hebrews 11, 1, when defining faith, states that faith is a certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. Faith is a certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. Now, they knew from all their teachings and all their Jewish traditions and the Torah and the Psalms of David and everything that a Messiah would come. And they their faith gave them hope for that and gave them certainty in that. And even though they didn't truly understand all the inner workings of it, they knew that when they recognized him, they must move forward with him. And I often think it's good for us to examine ourselves and compare ourselves to them and gain an understanding that the human heart and human nature is always the same. And so look at us and our faith with Christ. We move forward. Our faith in the word and our faith in Christ gives us hope and gives us certainty of the things that are not yet known. Think about heaven and streets of gold. Can you truly comprehend what that looks like? But you know that they exist, even though you can't comprehend what it will be like. Do you believe that angels exist? Well, of course we do. But can you truly imagine what one looks like? Are you prepared to see them in all of their glory? And imagine the face of Christ when you finally stand before him. Our faith in him gives us hope and gives us a certainty of him. And yet even in that, there is still an aspect of him that we cannot understand. that We will not be able to understand until we are before him. So even we push forward with a faith and a hope and certainty of things that are not yet seen. But what specifically were these men placing their faith in that was allowing them to push forward in these moments? Well, we know that. Andrew was seemingly trusting in the declaration of a prophet. Andrew was trusting in John the Baptist and trusting that the spirit was with him and trusting that when he was declaring, behold, the Lamb of God, it was to be listened to. And so he sought Christ. But when you look at verses 45, you see that Philip and Nathaniel, their reliance was a little different. In verse 45, Philip tells Nathaniel when he goes to tell him about Christ, that he is the one that Moses wrote about in the law and that the prophets wrote about, meaning that Nathaniel and Philip had a unique 
understanding and they were studying the law and they knew the word. And so when the word became flesh, this faith that they had in that was able to allow them to recognize him for what he was and to come before him and understand the declaration. But what makes this section of of the story so pivotal as we see the the 12 begin to coming to Christ is kind of kind of what these men did after meeting Jesus Christ. What each one of these men did after they met him. Now, John MacArthur, when he's talking about the Gospel of John, he says it's always important for us to remember that it's very different than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have certain aspects that they're trying to do, record it in chronological order and speak to the Jews and convince them that he is the Messiah. But John is constantly focused on theology. And the English theologian N.T. Wright says the same thing. He says that it's almost as if John is pulling us into a classroom and sitting us down at a table and giving us the most divine aspects of theology and then sending us out into the world to practice it. And so we talked about the foundations that he builds on, but we also need to understand that even though John is distinct from the other Gospels, it is still the same story of Jesus Christ and it is all woven together. And there is something that John is beginning to point out here. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. We're going to read verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this, this is known as the Great Commission. The resurrection has occurred and Christ is getting ready to ascend. And so he is now meeting with his disciples and he is giving them instructions. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, what John is showing us here is the beginning of the seeds of the Great Commission being planted. We have the one, the Messiah coming. Then we have the one making straight the way of the Lord and John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist declares and two disciples seek. And then one goes and tells his brother. And then one is met by Christ. And then he goes and finds someone. And so you start to see the seeds of the Great Commission Happening because these men, every single one of these men, after they met Jesus Christ, they all went and told someone else about him. Rather, it was immediately like John and Andrew and Philip, or rather, it was at some point in the future, like Peter and Nathaniel or Bartholomew, as he's called in the other Gospels. They all went and told someone else about Christ. And you can see also what John was telling us about the light and the darkness. You can see as Jesus is standing here singularly. His, even before the twelve are there, you can see his light already beginning to reach out, pulling people towards him. You can see this happening. But <clears throat> no one really displays this any better, initially at least, than Andrew. 
Andrew is a unique disciple. If you ever get a chance to do a study on an individual, a study on Andrew is very fascinating. Fascinating, <laughs> Because Andrew seems to be the disciple that gathers. You know, we talked about Andrew going and telling Peter, but if you read on in the gospel in John 12, 20 and 22, you'll see that there's a story where two Greeks came and they wanted to meet Jesus. Well, they didn't go to Andrew. They went to Philip. But after meeting them, Philip goes and he gets Andrew and Andrew comes and meets them. And then Andrew takes Philip and they go and they meet Christ. And then a little before that, in John 6, verse 8, you see that the multitudes are there and they are listening to Christ teach and they have no idea how they're going to feed them. And Philip is kind of having a fit because there's no way they can feed all these people. It would cost 200 denarii to be able to feed them all. And Andrew takes the little boy who has five loaves and two fish and Andrew is the one that brings him to Christ. Now, nothing massive, quote, ever happens, particularly with Andrew, but all these relationships and these miracles happen with the people that Andrew continues to bring to Christ. Andrew bringing these people to Christ is completely changing the outcome of Christendom and humanity and just history in general. And all he's doing is trying to bring them to Jesus to meet him. And when speaking on Andrew, the, uh, the Scottish theologian Arthur Gossip states that simple folks who seemingly have no gifts other than their own, <clears throat> no gifts of their own, can do wonderful things for Christ through those they influence. Simple folks who seemingly have no gifts of their own can do wonderful things for Christ through those they influence. Now he is saying seemingly though, because we know that going out with courage and with bravery and with conviction and telling people about the risen Savior and trying to bring them to meet Christ, that is a gift. And that is something that should be valued by your church and your community and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think if we're going to take this lesson and we're going to apply it to our own lives, we have to ask ourselves, and we'll go specifically with fathers here since it's Father's Day, when we are leading our families... How much of the heart of Andrew is in our heart? How much of Andrew's heart is in ours? Are we studying the word with our wife and praying with our wife and bringing her before the Lord? Are we studying with our kids, praying with our kids, letting our kids see an example of what a man of God looks like in a community and in this world? And are we bringing them before Christ in one way or another? Is the heart of Andrew within us? And we can take that and we can go beyond fathers and we can look at us as a church body and ask if, as a church, if we have the heart of Andrew, do we reach out into our community and try to bring people into the fold and try to introduce them to Jesus Christ and to his ways? And I think that that is something that we'll leave each other with here today to maybe reflect on during the week and examine in our own lives is regardless of how you met Jesus Christ. Rather, it was listening to someone declare him and you only knew him from a distance until you met him. Rather, Jesus Christ met you divinely and in person through a spiritual happening. Or rather, it was, it was some other form, regardless of how you came before him. After you met Christ, have you continued the cycle and how are you going forward and telling people of him? Or have you become complacent in your relationship 
and you've stopped the spreading of the good news. And I hope that for all of us, after we have met Christ, we continue to press forward for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for all things that you've given us. We thank you for the rain and for your miracles. We thank you for this body. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for all things that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you bless this day, that you continue to guide us as we move forward, that we lean on you, that we lead our families, our households, that we lead our friends to you, and that we are an example of your love to all those who are around us. Amen.